Hello and welcome to the Hearsay Sidebar, a podcast where the Hearsay team gets together around the microphone to talk about the legal side of what's in the news. The Hearsay Sidebar is a podcast by Lext Australia, a legal innovation company that makes the law easier to access and easier to practice. I'm joined today by fan favourite, Connie Pappos. <laughs> Welcome, you. Connie. Thank you. Good to be back. Now, Connie, what are we talking about today? You've kind of spilt some ethical philosophy in my legal podcast. I have. And today we're actually talking about how we, as a society, I guess, separate the artist from the art, especially in controversial circumstances. And we're going to do that by looking at a couple of well-known cases, starting off with Kelly. Yeah. So tell me a bit about that one. Robert Sylvester Kelly well-known American R&B singer, songwriter and producer, known for songs such as I Believe I Can Fly. And I do know that one. Yeah, that's probably yeah. the only one that I really know. And then there's another one called Lakes Shaken. Not familiar with that one. Not familiar with that Not one. Not familiar. I Believe I Can Fly is very early 2000s, isn't it? That's where I place it in my in- internal in your, culture clock. When you and your friends started singing. <laughs> oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. The reason R. Kelly has made media, I guess, is because he over the course of several years, has come under fire for very bad behaviour, I guess. Yeah, look, it's pretty bad. He's been convicted of racketeering and sex trafficking. Can't get a lot worse than that as far as criminal convictions go. And I guess the reason why we're talking about R. Kelly and this topic in general is we're asking the question from an ethical and a legal standpoint, can you listen to R. Kelly's music now because of what he has done, or is that just morally and ethically a no-go? I wouldn't listen to R. Kelly's music for other reasons. Not my cup of tea, but for someone who might otherwise want to listen to I Believe I Can Fly, is it permissible? Is it not? It is a very difficult question. Obviously, like you said, it's a moral and ethical one. And I guess for me, at least, it comes down to what was the crime? Like, what was the conviction? In this case, racketeering and sexual offences, pretty extreme, definitely bad. And it isn't something that most people would be okay with generally. So then listening to the song, it's difficult. In listening to the music, you're almost, you're supporting the artist who has done something which morally and ethically you don't support. It isn't an unusual situation either. Not a new one either. Because we've had to grapple with the art created by artists, authors, auteurs who we know have engaged in sexual misconduct, whether that's watching a Woody Allen movie or watching a Roman Polanski movie, listening to Michael Jackson. Yes, that's a good one. Watching early seasons of House of Cards or The Usual Suspects. So these aren't completely... New problems. That's right. Not completely new ethical challenges, but I suppose we have different categories, right, that we might put these into. You might say in one category is the charged, convicted, found guilty in a court of law kind of artist where we have some high degree of certainty about their wrongdoing, like R. Kelly. And then you might have another category of accused of serious criminal offence, but 
that's strenuously denied and disputed. The Michael Jackson would fit the bill for that. It's yep. probably a good example. His supporters still say that's a posthumous character assassination, for example. And then you've probably got a third category of people who haven't done anything unlawful but have beliefs or... Viewpoints. Viewpoints, perceptions that we or a subset of the culture finds offensive. Yes. And I think tying this back to, you know, this is a legal podcast, but I think what's interesting about this is that we often use this mental heuristic of innocent until proven guilty. We don't like, especially as lawyers, to affect our judgment or affect our behaviour until we have some reasonable degree of certainty about wrongdoing. But innocent until proven guilty is a rule of criminal procedure. That's right. It doesn't doesn't work in the court of public opinion. That's right. And in fact, in a great many legal arenas of decision making, it is permissible to have regard to things that aren't proven beyond a reasonable doubt in the court of law to make decisions based on imperfect and incomplete information. This is often the case with professional or even employment disciplinary proceedings. It's not always going to be the case that it's innocent until proven guilty, a, a charge or an arrest can sometimes be sufficient to take professional disciplinary action. Totally agree with you. (laughs) So R. Kelly has been convicted, and that was in New York back in 2021, and he was actually sentenced to 30 years in prison, so he's already serving a sentence Mm. in prison. But then recently he has uh, made headlines again because a jury in Chicago found him guilty Three counts of enticing minors for sex and three counts of producing child sexual imagery. And uh, the sentence for the Chicago trial is actually not scheduled until February 2023. But basically, he has garnered a lot of media attention, which, back to the point of court of public opinion, has had him quite... Highly criticised, for good reason, given that he has been found guilty. I feel like R. Kelly's on one end of the spectrum. It's <laughs> Agreed. It's maybe not the most contemporary or relevant art in the first place. No, agreed. Not, look, don't look for my opinions on R&B music. I'm a 30-something commercial lawyer. I'm not I'm not an expert on R&B music. But also, he's so far on that, that far side of the spectrum of of celebrity or artistic wrongdoing where it feels like if we were going to make the decision that we could no longer support an artist or their work because of some personal conduct of the artist, this would be it. I guess my question to you, David, is do you think it would be easier to separate the artist from the art in this type of situation based off the conviction in What I mean by that is R. Kelly has already been convicted for racketeering, for example, but now separately he's been convicted for sex offences dealing with children. Do you think people wouldn't be struggling with this issue of separating the artist from the art if it had only been the racketeering? I think that's a good point. Our individual mores might say, oh, I have no issue listening to an artist who's convicted of a a tax charge or financial crime or drug crime. God knows there's plenty of artists who have been convicted of those firearms charges, but there's something about sex offences that sets them apart, that excludes us from enjoying or continuing to support that art. It's interesting that both you and I, I think, almost assume that, well, no, you can't separate the art from the artist in some circumstance, right? What, 300 years ago, Voltaire said, let us separate the man from his works. But I think ethically we've come to a point where will always associate the artist with the art to a degree and make a moral equivalence between them. 
where that conduct is severe enough. And I guess the question is how severe. No, I totally agree with you because I guess now the the byproduct of that artist is representation of that artist. So by supporting that byproduct, you're inadvertently supporting, mm. whether financially, in any, in some way you are supporting the artist, right? So, yeah, it's difficult. I think for me personally, it comes down to the conviction. Mm. And it also comes down to... I guess the victim, in the sense that who was a victim in the racketeering offence compared to the victims for mm. the other offences that he's been convicted? Yeah, it really depends on your kind of personal moral philosophy, yes. really, doesn't it? I mean, not everyone has to agree with me. I mean, a, an odd way of looking at this that I thought was, R. Kelly's not going to be spending any of the royalties he's earning if no. you listen to his music <laughs> on Spotify. He's in prison for the next 30 years. Plus. But if someone who's not committed any crime at all, yep. but has just said something that you find hateful or offensive or discriminatory, that person will continue to enjoy yes. the revenue that they earn from you supporting their art. And that's also difficult for me, and we'll talk about that a bit later on, because very different circumstances, like you said, mm. it's just controversial opinion. I mean, that's almost a separate issue, isn't it? That's not, can we separate the artist who, who's committed unquestionably bad acts from their art? It's, does the right to free speech, to the extent that right even exists here in Australia, I think when we often talk about the right of free speech, we forget that it's pretty curtailed and, and modest here in Australia. But anyway, that in a liberal philosophical sense to free speech, does that extend to us not deselecting that person's yeah. work and art when we're offended by what they say? Yeah. On the same end of the spectrum, I guess, with R. Kelly in terms of they've been convicted, but not the same end of the spectrum in terms of the actual offences in which mm. they've been found guilty. Well-known another singer is Chris Brown. Now, I guess most people would know Chris Brown from his hit songs such as Forever, with you, and by most people, I mean my generation. I remember Chris Brown pre-domestic violence charges. Yes, these songs were pre-domestic violence charges. Mm. So they were released back in 2007. And then I guess the most well-known story that's been tied to Chris Brown is his domestic violence charge against Rihanna. Well, yes. And Rihanna, for those of you who don't know, was his girlfriend at the time, and she's had a very successful career since. So she's been able to separate herself, I guess, from the artist. Good reason. Fortunately for her. <laughs> so he attacked Rihanna inside his car before the 2009 Grammy Awards. Now, that comes at a time after he's already received such great success with these songs that have been released, and mm. again, that defined my childhood, or at least my teenagehood and he actually pleaded guilty to that attack which saw him land with five years of probation about 1400 hours worth of labor-oriented community service and a year of domestic violence counseling program so i vaguely remember after this assault australia took a stance i don't think we allowed him to perform in Australia. That does sound familiar. Was he on the minister's list of discretionary refusal of visas on the basis of character? There's that, the power of the minister to refuse... It was the tip of my tongue, honestly. <laughs> I'm sure it was. There's a power of the minister to refuse a visa to a person on character grounds, but it has to be a decision made by the minister themselves. And I think that's the basis, I think, on that list of discretionary refusals on character grounds. Which is interesting because it speaks to what we're discussing today in terms of separating the art from the art, and you would do that if you don't support what the artist's conduct, what their conduct is in real life. And clearly, the minister didn't support mm, and does not support. brings it back around to the law, doesn't it? Because yes. it, that, that brings it around to being a justifiable basis for an administrative decision. Yes. Question is, would that administrative decision have been made 
had he not been a celebrity. I, there, I'm sure that there are other... I'm sure there are many people who travel yes. on tourist visas yes. every year who have domestic violence charges in and out of Australia. Going to the, I guess, a- another discussion in terms of how media and celebrity and their conduct, how it influences the real life world. Mm. reason I'm also bringing up Chris Brown is because earlier this year he found himself in trouble yet again after allegations were made that he actually drugged and raped a woman and she was suing him for $20 million in Florida. So court documents actually indicated that this took the assault took place around the 30th of December in 2020 on the yacht on Diddy Star Island Estate in Florida. But more interestingly, at least from a legal perspective, is that texts recovered by the Miami Beach Police Department have now led to that woman. So I think, I don't think her name's been released. I think they're just mm. referring to her as Jane Doe. Her legal counsel withdrawing themselves as her representatives. Oh, wow. So apparently these texts, and I don't know if it's been released on like TMZ or some gossip site based. Some other similar reputable Yes, of course. Of course. My apologies. But it has led to them having to withdraw and they wanted to make clear though that wasn't, their withdrawal had nothing to do with the legitimacy of the accusation itself. But they just couldn't bring themselves in light of this evidence to actually be her legal representative. So let's talk about some of these cases at the other end of the spectrum. I think this one is especially challenging for many people because the work is so universally loved. Talk about J.K. Rowling. Yes, this is the exact topic. This is the one that challenges you, I think. Definitely challenges me for many reasons because if we're going to talk about what's defined my childhood, Harry Potter, the entire book series definitely defined my childhood. Mm. Going to every movie premiere with my family, dressing up even reading every book cover front to back multiple times. And the interesting thing about this one is it has defined so many childhoods. It's her opinion about transgender women. That's right. She released a tweet back in 2020, which was then subsequently criticised as being transphobic. And that comes despite her repeated insistence that she is for trans people, but then supposedly there is a history, and I say supposedly because, not for any bias, but only because I haven't reviewed every tweet that she's ever done in all her conduct in the past. But she has had a history of gender critical commentary, and that's been a topic explored by an author known as Caitlin Bruns in her 2019 Vox story. So she basically says, whilst Rowling proclaims that she's in support of trans people, she has basically carried on like her conduct, especially in the Twitter universe. Or the Twitterverse. Sorry, yes, apologies. Twitterverse. Use the portmanteau, please. (laughs) Doesn't support uh, those claims when she's liked tweets such as calling trans people men in dresses. Now, Rowling has responded to that saying that liking that comment was an accident. But it's out there forever. Once Mm. you've done something, it's there. People are going to criticise because she is a public figure. People have criticised And now it's created this narrative of her being transphobic, whether that's true or not. It's neither. It's not for us to decide. This particular case makes me question if it's possible to do the opposite, which is not to separate the art from the artist, but whether the art separates itself from the artist. Whether the art and the world that is created around it exists without the artist, that postmodern concept of death of the artist as well, that kind of disassociation from the art and its source. 
because the world of Harry Potter, the wizarding world, is made up of a lot of different sources. Is that what it's called? No, I'm just telling you it's a great world. (laughs) I'm deferring to the experts here. It's made up of a lot of different works, right? Not all of them by J.K. Rowling. There's the Fantastic Beasts films, which are based on the source material but written by a different author or different screenwriter. She she has a book called Fantastic Beasts and actually – I don't know if you know this. I'm just going to offer this piece of information. It's a reference work, is it not? Fantastic Beasts is a textbook that the kids at the Hogwarts had to study. Yeah, it's a reference. Yes, okay, yes. But she actually did come out with, and she wrote a Fantastic Beasts like textbook. Yes, yeah. I might own a copy, I think. (laughs) I definitely do. But then the films, which are... Stories. Correct. Called Fantastic Pieces, where to find them, are, are written by a different screenwriter. Agreed, yes. Then you have even other more distant sources of media, like the Hogwarts Legacy video game releasing later this year, yep. uh, with which J.K. Rowling's not associated. So It's kind of snowboard into this amazing enterprise. So many different stakeholders and different fan bases, I guess. So is that kind of a loophole? You can enjoy the work if it's taken on a life of its own? It's... Again, coming back to what has the artist actually done, which you don't agree with, the type of conduct that mm. we're discussing, I think it also comes down to the level of passion that you have for the art itself. Having read every book, attended the movie premieres, even the play, the subsequent play, Harry Potter and the Cursed Child, it yeah, it comes down to the love for the art. Do you, Does that override the artist mm. and mm. your perception of the artist? And how does that interact with the right to express an opinion that you disagree with. Yes. Because you you have a right to express that opinion. I often think of Tom Cruise in this category as well because you have a right to believe and to practice your religion. Yes. Right? But some people are put off or offended, I suppose, by either Scientology as a practice or by some of the things that the Church of Scientology has done to its former members. And Tom Cruise is quite senior in that organisation. Does that right to follow and practice a belief, should you... And again, it's a moral question. It's not a legal one. Although there is an interesting legal question, which we'll come on to later. Does that right to practice that religion, morally speaking countervail against your kind of distaste for, for yep. what might have been no, done. No, agreed. Name. Yeah. It's, we're not going to have an answer. No, it, no. Like you said, it's a moral question. It comes down to your person. But it, your Tom Cruise example made me think about why is it okay, for example, people to boycott Tom Cruise movies because they don't agree with his choice of religion? We see this in, and now we're getting more into my field, Connie, <laughs> in parliamentary democracies. That is definitely more culture. your field. In the culture of British Parliament, the personal lives of politicians are really considered off limits and you should make decisions about whom to elect to elected positions based on their policies and based on their professional lives, not their personal lives, not if yes. they've separated from their partner, not if yes. they've cheated on their partner, not if ha- have this, that or the other skeleton in their closet that's not relevant to the job they're doing. Conversely, in the United States, someone's personal life is very much in play in their political life. Yes. They elect the whole person and the personal conduct and family relationships of American politicians are under a great deal of scrutiny. I think that comes down to the campaign culture, though. The way that they campaign against their opposition in America, it's to tear Mm. them down professionally and personally. How can you vote for someone who morally supports, insert social cause here? And maybe that's because 
so much of politics in the United States is uh, social and moral issues, I yep. suppose, rather than economic ones. But That's a good point. Uh, it's the same thing. We separate the person from the profession or the person from the politics. We seem to have a greater difficulty doing that and a reluctance to do that with art, which I think is interesting. Yeah, that's a really good point. I, again, have no answer for you other than to say, I think it comes down to the person and how much you love the art itself. For me, the Harry Potter one is very difficult. And to your point in terms of the Harry Potter world has gone beyond the books where it's now a movie franchise, is it okay to say, I love Harry Potter, but just the movies, not the books, because I don't (laughs) like J.K. Rowling? I would also like to clarify that just because I do support the Harry Potter book series in terms of I absolutely love it and I would read it, time and time again, doesn't mean that I support J.K. Rowling's commentary against trans people. I Mm. wouldn't want to be seen as transphobic. I don't want my love for the art to be associated with that artist's opinions or convictions or actions. So whether it's R. Kelly's music or Chris Brown's music, just because I like the song forever doesn't mean that I support domestic violence. Yeah, absolutely. But there is that challenge in the question of can you separate the art from the artist, which is not just how do I feel about it morally, but how will my peers and the society that exists around me think about it? And how will my actions be judged? It's an interesting (laughs) question, isn't it? You know what else is an interesting question? I looked into this because I thought our question for today's podcast is can you separate the art from the artist? I wondered if there are any circumstances where the law requires you to separate from the art from the artist, whether it's unlawful to discriminate against a person on the basis of their prior bad acts. And I did find something. So, you ordered some results. Yeah, Please tell. There is a form of unlawful discrimination in, and we're talking about the Australian jurisdictions here. We're Australian lawyers. I can't speak to the rest of the world, obviously. But there is a form of unlawful discrimination in the Australian Capital Territory and the Northern Territory, Australian Capital Territory being historically quite front runner in Australian human rights jurisprudence, called irrelevant criminal record discrimination under the ACT Discrimination Act. It's unlawful to discriminate against someone in the provision of goods or services or in employment, interestingly, for a conviction that is not directly relevant to the situation in which the discrimination takes place, which I think is an interesting test to impose on the service provider or the employer. If someone presents with a criminal record that involves child sex offences and they're applying for a job at a childcare centre, Pretty obvious that it's a directly relevant charge, but what if it's an offence of common assault against an adult? Does that offence of violence directly relate to childcare? I don't know. So that's interesting, but that's only in the Australian Capital Territory and the Northern Territory. It isn't a feature of Commonwealth legislation. It's not a feature of legislation here in New South Wales, which I think means that it's not a protected attribute. Yep in New South Wales or in the other states that I haven't mentioned, to discriminate against someone on the basis of things like a spent conviction or a quashed conviction or a charge that didn't lead to a conviction, which is really interesting because I could have two people applying for a job and those people might have nearly equal qualification, nearly equal suitability for the job, and it would not be unlawful to say, oh, this person, they were once charged with a very serious offence and sure, they were never convicted, but... It gives me a bit of pause, so I'm going to go with the other person. It's a protected attribute designed to guide our decision-making away from unlawful or unfair decisions. 
and to only make decisions based on relevant information. Yeah, we're not uh, providing goods and services yes. to R. Kelly. No. We're deciding whether or not to acquire the good or service of streaming their music. No, but using J.K. Rowling as an example, from those Twitter comments and the transphobic narrative that now surrounds her name, a school in... I want to say somewhere in the UK, I can't remember exactly, but basically a school in the UK had six schoolhouses, like sporting teams. They had previously named one of those teams Rolling, after JK Rowling, following these tweets and the, again, transphobic nature of those tweets. There was basically uproar and they have now decided to rename that house. I don't know how many artists will have something named after them. But it is clear that separating the artist from the art isn't easy. And Mm. it's not always about the art itself, but the representation of that art. And I think that Discrimination Act is an interesting way of thinking about the problem. Because if Michael Jackson and J.K. Rowling were applying for a job, it would be lawful to discriminate on the basis of J.K. Rowling's opinions, holding a particular belief in that sense, that there are some protected political beliefs, but holding an opinion on that topic and expressing it in that way isn't a protected attribute. But Michael Jackson's acquittal on a serious charge is a protected attribute under that act. It would be lawful to deny one the job on the basis of a lawful but offensive opinion and unlawful to deny the other person the job on the basis of an acquittal from a serious offence. You know, you're right, that definitely is interesting, especially given the amount of allegations and accusations made against Michael Jackson to the point where they ended up with the two-part docuseries Mm. delving into those accusations themselves. In closing, we've asked the question, can you separate the art from the artist? And I think our answer is, it's up to you. Yes. But in some circumstances, you might have to separate the person from their actions. But I wanted to close with this. It certainly seems that there are plenty of people who take the view that you can separate the art from the artist. R. Kelly has 4.5 million monthly listeners on Spotify. That's incredible. Similarly, we're talking about Chris Brown. Even after his 2009 charge with Rihanna, he has had, I think, over 344 million streams for a song that was released in 2018, 2019. Wow. As the continued popularity of Annie Hall or Thriller or any of these sort of works of art show us, it seems like plenty of us are able to separate the artists from our favourite works of art. I think so. You've been listening to the Hearsay Sidebar. Sidebar is our fun, free podcast about legal news. But if you're an Australian lawyer, you can sign up to the original Hearsay the Legal podcast at htlp.com.au. That's htlp.com.au to get all 10 of your CPD points by listening to entertaining interviews with lawyers, judges and other leading figures in the law on demand, on the go and at an unbeatable price. That was HTLP for Hearsay the Legal podcast. Hearsay Sidebar is produced by Ross Davis with help from Jacob Malby. Make sure you follow us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts so you'll be notified whenever we release a new episode. If you like the show, leave us a rating on your preferred podcast platform because it helps other law geeks just like you find us. Thanks for listening.